Yeah. So I think there's two things I guess I would mention. Like, first of all, and I wouldn't have believed this when I started, but the people skills really matter. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've grown <laughs> a lot on the people skills side from where I was at the beginning. I was letting technical ability try to just win the day. You can't be without that. And it does matter that you need to be able to walk the walk. But yeah. I thought that would be enough. And it wasn't. You have to convince people. There's this constant talk about like, you need to bring people along. And I always just yeah. thought that was lip service and I never really believed in it. Now looking backwards, I realized that's what it took. Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SCP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Josh Haynes. He's the Global DevSecOps Capability Manager and Software Factory Founder at Rolls-Royce. When he started at Rolls-Royce about six years ago, he was focused on materials engineering. Three years ago, he embarked on a new journey to build what is now called the Software Factory. Josh has learned a ton about how to navigate organizational change, specifically in the digital transformation space. His experience is one of the most successful ones I've personally heard. Don't miss this one. And really quick, before we dive in, a huge thank you to Ruman Ori for being my co-host. Ruman is always great at bringing awesome questions and insights to our conversations. And as always, if you think there's one person who might enjoy our show, please consider sharing it with them or share some feedback from me. You can send me a note at podcast at scp.com. All right, enough of me talking. Let's dive in. Hope you enjoy. We're going to talk a little bit about Software Factory, yeah. the hoodie fresh off of KubeCon. KubeCon, yep. And the t-shirt. Oh, that's true. B-test, yeah. Yeah, very nice. If I would have known, I would have worn my my matching hoodie. Yeah. Coders. It's in my closet. I know. Oh, I can't. I'm not a coder. Mm -hmm. So that's why I feel like I'm a fraud, maybe wearing it. Oh, that's bad. So I want to set some context for anybody kind of dialing in. So... You know, Josh, you're with Rolls-Royce. Mm -hmm. Your uh, group within Rolls-Royce is unofficially, officially software factory. I know the capability name is different, but yeah, I really want to focus ops. on, yeah, I think it focus more on the kind of the broad software factory initiative yep. that you've been on for two years now? About three years. Three years, yeah. man. A little over. And yep. so, you know, the last three years now, especially COVID, like the entire airline industry, aerospace and, and rippling out has been hit really hard with COVID mm -hmm. and still recovering. And you've been kind of in this initiative during that time. I'm just kind of curious, like what could you say in that realm for Rolls-Royce? What has the last three years been like? Just again, context setting for somebody. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously we were hit just like most big airlines were hit, sure. right? I mean, uh, you know, Rolls-Royce's business model definitely requires airplanes to be flying, people to be flying. And, and I think that we were hitting that way. Uh, we have a big defense exposure as well, and that business has been doing great. And so I think it's a lot of common challenges, a lot of them also public, right? Shareholder questions and things like that. We're right in the middle of kind of a big public transformation. We have a new CEO. There's a lot of focus on the finances and all this and all that's, I think it's going well, honestly. 
But also it means that during that time, you know, everybody is thinking of how do they tighten the belt? How can mm. we do more with less, right? All the old kind of things, uh, work smarter, not harder, all the things you hear. And I think we were affected by all those types of things. And again, I'm not as exposed as much to the civil side. I think with COVID, we were hit harder on the civil side, sure. which I'm not exposed to as much. We're mostly in defense at the moment. But all those normal challenges you can expect. And then obviously hit with, all again, all the normal things around now working from home some and what does that look like mm -hmm. and all the IT trouble that every big enterprise ran into, right? I don't think we're special in that way at all. That's fair. Yeah. So as we think about Software Factory as a name... I wonder if you could kind of like help define what is Software Factory? Where did that idea kind of come from? I know you're a mechanical engineer by, by Materials. trade. Materials engineer. Yeah. Okay. Yep. A different ME apparently yep. than yeah. I'm MSC. familiar with. Yeah. Oh, way cooler. They're way cooler. Okay. Yeah. So many acronyms. I'm learning. Materials is where the cool kids hang out. That's where the cool kids. Okay. Yeah. So as a cool kid on the material side, like software was not your trade. That's not how you, yeah, what you go to college for and what you grew yep. up doing. Where did this concept come from? Yeah. So, I mean, it, kind of if we go all the way back, I got out of college and I was I was working on materials. That was my background. I got a master's in that. I was at Honeywell Aerospace doing failure analysis and castings and forgings and all this stuff. But from the time I got out of college, I ran a side business called Josh Pro that built websites and fixed laptops. This was in the age when everyone's laptops were full of malware and you had to clean them up, mm -hmm. right? It's a story that a lot of IT geeks got into. And I built websites for people too, and just kind of learned. I started with Dreamweaver, right? Oh, yeah. And using some templates and stuff and raw HTML and CSS. And it was always a hobby. And it was never something I thought of that could ever be a career, but it was just this other side thing. Like work was work. I got done with work and then I did hobbies and I had a number of hobbies and it was very much nine to five for work. Materials was a career. If you think of the Ikigai model with the four circles, which is a concept I love to think about, right? You've I was a two circle guy, right? It was like, I could make money at this and I was good at it, yeah. but it was not my passion. It was not any of that. And I talk, when I do like mentorship with people, I talk a lot about that concept because for me, it's important to recognize like it was a two circle thing. It was just a thing I did to make money, to fund my lifestyle. Sure. But eventually, you know, fast forward, I'm at Rolls Royce. I'm hired into Rolls Royce to do materials work. And I wanted to build a little web app to solve some problems we were having. We were reusing shared mailboxes and Excel files, and it was all a big mess. And I built a little Python app. And I first asked IT to build it for us, and they didn't do that. And I kind of got laughed at away. And this is about 2017. And then I said, fine, I'll build it. So I just built it kind of in my free time. Like, hey, this is a cool web app. We'll have live metrics for our little materials team and all this stuff. And it was kind of a, a side gig, I guess. But then I just looked for some web server space to just host this app I had. There was nothing like that. And it was really surprising at the time to me that that wasn't available. It wasn't a thing that was done or understood. If I wanted to try to get it approved, it would have been a, a very long Word document and many sets of approvals, somewhere between 15 and 20 signatures kind of thing. And it just seemed strange to me. So I kind of just ran it and I found a way to do it for the IT nerds. It was, I used a batch script to host like a local SQLite database and it would install the Python stuff and it would run locally on your machine. But the database was on a shared drive. So it felt like a web app and it kind of looked like a web app. It was in a browser, but it was very silly in the way that it actually worked. But we ran that in production for about a year. We had our engineering team come and look at how much money it saved. And it was an enormous amount of money, like mid six figures type money for all the teams using it at the time. And it was kind of shocking to everyone how much more efficiency you can get from a custom built web tool for this kind of thing. 
essentially that led to, I went and asked the engineering director at the time. I said, look, I could teach other teams to do this. Like, it's not that hard. We can learn it. There's free classes. There's things we can do. Could I go spend half my time to turn this into something, teach people to do, I'll still do materials work, but I really think we could turn this into something useful. And he let me do it. And so at that moment I was still in materials, but I was going off half my time starting to teach other people. Before you kind of go forward into teaching other people, Mm. go back to this first app. You launched this thing in your own team. What were your peers thinking? Were they like, what are you doing? This is crazy. Or were they like, oh, wow, this actually is super helpful. Yeah, they liked it because, I mean, it was some of the things we'll talk about later about like how Software Factory works today started at that time. And one of those was that's still important to us today is there is no requirements document. I was in the team. I was in the weekly meetings with the manager and all the rest of our peers it was only what we thought was useful. So it's like, what's the next thing this little tool could do to help us? For instance, no one ever thought of it until it was live, but they said, wait, what if Jim goes on vacation? His suppliers need to be covered. So we built a little thing that like, if someone's gone, you can reassign the suppliers to the other person. It's one of those little things, probably no one would have thought to throw that on a requirements document. Right. But because we're the team, the requirements document lives in all of us. Right. We discovered that business value over time. And that's a theme that hits still today that we really think you have to discover those things. You can't just write them down and expect them to be right. Wow. I think Uh, that's really important. Robin and I would not disagree with that sentiment at all. So (laughs) that's encouraging to hear that you guys just kind of naturally figure that out. It's valuable. And then you know immediately what's useful. And like I'm on the team, I know what the manager's looking at. So I knew for this kind of metric, I need a pie chart because that's the way that she's thinking about it. And Mm. so we threw a pie chart in there and I didn't have to ask that. I just knew that. And then when they saw it, it's like, oh, this makes sense because this is how it was in Excel or this is what she puts together in a PowerPoint slide deck for her managers, those kinds of things. Oh, so you kind of anticipated based on what you knew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just pulled it in because I was on the team every week doing the work with everyone else. I really think even today, a lot of what we'll talk about later, I think is really important and that the people around have to be engaged and have to be driving what those next requirements are. And don't ask them to write down the next 20. Just ask for the next one to two to three, maybe. We we see that. And we've tried to figure out ways around it. But there's this sort of fundamental issue of here are the people with the need and the understanding. And then here is the process by which the solution comes into existence. And whether it's working with an SEP or it's internal resource or like you got to size it, you got to make promises about how long it's going to take, exactly what it's going to be, what's it going to cost. And so much gets lost in each of those steps. Absolutely. So I think to a lot of people, I suspect they would say like, well, we could never learn to do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, maybe you could. There was probably a point where people didn't know how to use Excel either. Sure. And now how much of everyone's business is running in Excel? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. You get blessed half your time. Mm Mm-hmm. I've heard that before. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Half your time is blessed to go do this internal initiative and uh, you're still doing materials work. Are you just working with the folks in your materials group or are you starting to branch out to other teams? What does that look like? Yeah. So like the wider part of the business that I was in was kind of US defense or like mostly US defense, mostly defense based, but working out of the US. So there were some other teams around us that had similar problems. We started scaling up. And I kind of went at that point, really went in on my own time, like as on the hobby side of things Uh is like figuring out how this is done everywhere else. Because there was this kind of idea that was starting to form in that like, this is a solved problem in the rest of the world. Mm. But in big enterprises, especially 
you know, sensitive industry, yeah, restricted highly industry, regulated, highly yeah, regulated yeah, industry, yeah. it doesn't feel solved. But like everyone else has figured this out, Spotify and Facebook and all the big tech companies. Sure. So like, what if we just took their playbook and backed up a couple years? Like, I don't want to be right on the bleeding edge, but like, right. <laughs> just take the playbook from every book about products and things out there and just do that mm. in Rolls Royce. And then find the little areas where we have to make a difference or right. do something slightly different because that would be insecure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So something it's like, that's unique for you just guys. Just steal yeah. from the playbook. And one of the most amazing things I love about the whole tech community is that they are very big on showing their work. Mm -hmm. Everyone wants to talk about the cool stuff they're doing. And so it's not a secret. You can just read the books, read the blogs, listen to the podcasts, watch the videos, and they will just tell you exactly what to go do. And like all we had to do is listen. Mm -hmm. So it was immediately scaling into like, wow, this shouldn't be a Python app running in a batch script. This should be in a container. Well, where can I run a container, right? And finding a little server, which was a Linux server with admin rights and putting Docker on it so we can start running more apps, right? Like yeah. all those kinds of things. And then start learning, wow, how am I supposed to update this thing? Well, I'm probably going to have to use version control. I'm going to have to do some kind of a release system. I don't know what that looks like. Turns out the whole world has figured out CICD and DevOps and go into that. It also aligned because our biggest customer, the DoD, is coming out and saying, everyone should be using DevSecOps. Right. Anyway, to kind of finish off the story, to catch us up to where we got to is sort of after a bit of time and some success in this space, I ended up moving out of materials into the digital transformation team. That gave me time to kind of do this full time. The DoD was asking their biggest suppliers to kind of go learn how to do this as a capability. We had started calling it Software Factory, and this was a happy accident because in the DoD, they have like 20 or 30 software factories. Like that phrase means something to them. And now all of a sudden Rolls-Royce had a software factory. So mm. I wish I could say I learned it from them, but it was actually, it was a little earlier and we just got lucky that the phrase aligned, which oh, was nice. I don't think, you know, and just as you and I've had prior conversations leading up to this, I don't yeah. think I've ever known where software factory, the name came from. Yeah, it was just an idea. And there was a, it was kind of a play because like our newsletter, we called it the router which has like, it's the traveler whenever you're manufacturing parts yeah. in a factory, but it's also has a tech connotation. Software factory was kind of because we manufacture engines and all this. It was, it was kind of meant to be kind of a fun thing, but it turned out to be fantastic because it aligns to our customers. So now there's this nice customer alignment piece that falls into place as well. So we kind of started scaling up. We started to formalize some of these concepts that made sense way back when. And so now we have this idea of like citizen developers, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about, I'm sure. And then like, how do we fit in the business? How do we start to take control of some of these things? How do we be better customers working with our vendors like SCP? And how do we do a better job with all those things? So, okay. I'm new to working with Josh. Maybe I'm on another team in Rolls Royce and I heard this name Software Factory. How do you explain what it is that this group does? Like, what is Software Factory? At the moment, there's really two main ways to interact with us. And I think that tells the story better than anything else. The primary way that we try to push everyone to is you work in another part of the business. Let's say you work in finance, you work in marketing, HR, engineering. You know about an app idea. Like everyone has app ideas. They're using Excel. They think it could be better. They come to us. They quote unquote, join the Software Factory we will go a lot of times and talk to their managers and try to convince them, hey, let's put this on your performance plan. Let's get 10 to 20% of your time, four to eight hours a week where you can work through some classes, work with us in our dev environment, start to learn our architecture and tech stack, 
we can copy existing apps for you. And maybe that's 60% of what you need or 70%. It's a lot faster to make changes to an existing app that works than it ever is to start from scratch. That's a big lift to start from scratch for someone who's just getting started in this. We have some common classes we buy around, like the JavaScript class, TypeScript class. We use Vue.js as our front-end framework. So we usually buy a Vue class and we get them started. And there's some interesting things here because it's like they're part of a team that's doing this. We have now set up guardrails in place. Our previous CEO would talk about freedom in a framework. And that's really what we're pushing here, where you have some guardrails, you can work within that. We take care of the security side. Over the last few years, we've really delivered a couple really nice things. One is a better approval process. It very much mirrors what the DoD does on their ATO or approval to operate or authority to operate model, where you can kind of go do development with certain restrictions. And then you go through this process where you have to prove that you've taken all of these security measures into account. And it's on a commit by commit basis, almost like uh, I believe they have something called CATO or continuous authority to operate. Ours is not quite as rigorous as theirs. Theirs can, can be very in-depth but the model is very similar. So you're continuously approving that this app or this code is fit for production in a good okay. environment. We've streamlined that. There's no more 50-page Word document from IT. We've kind of got global approval on the new approval process. So that's really nice. So there's a lot that we're offering. And so people are coming to us who used to go do shadow IT or just mm-hmm. like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go do my own. We're now in this nice spot where it's like, it's actually easier to work with us. We make it good. You're not doing it because we're forcing you. You're doing it because you realize there's a better chance of success for your project if you come to actual value at the end of the line here. So that's a big part of it. The other thing citizen developers get is to me, full cards on the table. I'm less concerned whether these people can ever be top flight coders or developers. I'd love to see them get better and feel like they're learning things. To me, digital transformation is really about upskilling the workforce Mm -hmm. and it's paid lip service a lot, but I don't think people take it seriously. It's a hard pattern. That's important. The other important thing is if we need an app for your team, if you're here, then you're the walking, talking requirements document. Even if you ever get past just beginner level coding, you never even complete a feature on your own. You're here, you're working with us, you're engaged. And when it comes time to find out what is the next thing you need to do, you're going to tell us what's the next thing. You're going to have the connections in the team. You're doing it on a daily basis. And so you know what needs to be done next. There's this concept that we use of like a pull versus push model. Mm-hmm. So if, if Software Factory is trying to push a project, we can maybe push three or four projects per person before we're out of bandwidth. Right. But we found, you know, even a small team like ours, we have, I think, six people at the moment. We have more than 70 citizen developers working with us from all around the business. Now, none of them, it's their full-time job. And they work anything from 10 or 20% of their business time to nights and weekends because they think it's fun. But they can pull on our time whenever they want. They can ask for help. Hey, I just spent two weeks. I built this thing. I've got a bug. Can you help me? And yes, we can jump in five minutes. Then they go off for two weeks and we don't hear from them. The other amazing thing is it sets up this model where they can disappear back into their day job and it doesn't hurt anything. It's very common for someone to start an app. Great idea. They're pulling on our time and then they're just radio silent for three months. We don't hear from them and we're not bothering them. We just let the code sit. We maybe archive it and we just wait because their day job is more important. That's their actual job. Right. They got pulled into something important. It could be a customer event or a uh, some kind of a fleet maintenance issue or a manufacturing problem. And then maybe three months, they'll just pop right back up and be like, hey, sorry, I had some stuff going on. Yeah. I want to get back into this. And we're like, cool, because we're here and you can pull our time as much as you need. It's a subtle thing, but it really makes a difference. What was going through my head as you said that is sort of the dynamics of 
like if you had sort of internally contracted this group to this other group, and then there are people assigned and then they're waiting, why aren't they responding? And like, there's a lot of cruft that would happen. Absolutely. If you outsourced even in the building. Mm -hmm. Even in the building. Yeah. I mean, we have, there's another software development team within the business and they've felt this before where it's like, they have someone ask for an app, so they start building it and then that person gets busy. And it's almost like they become the person who's pushing this project, mm -hmm. but they don't technically feel ownership. So is it up to them to decide the next feature and you build it, but no one's pulling it, right? It'd be like you guys trying to push the next thing without yeah. someone pulling. Right. And if you switch this model to where it's like, if you need us, you pull on us. But right. if you disappear, we disappear and we're going to just focus on the next thing. You know, I love how Roman talks about this just for us in our own business. Like we can't provoke a sale as a product <laughs> development consulting firm. We can't compel somebody to spend... I don't know, a million dollars building custom software. Yeah. There has to be a real need there that somebody wants to pull that forward. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I, I find myself wondering, is there like a time where you've noticed that pulling though is more than what you guys can actually support because you're also still trying to push things forward and it's hard to predict what, how much the pulling is going to feel? You know, like how do you manage that? It definitely has. You know, I'm not going to lie. There's been a couple of projects where someone high up has said, I need this pushed. Right. So there are a few things that we push, but even then we make sure that everyone realizes we need a product owner. We need someone to be there. Mm. If you're disengaged, we'll disengage and let everyone know you disengaged. Managing expectations Managing across expectations, the board is like, super important absolutely. for this work. There is a few of those, but it's definitely not our main model and it's not what we push. Okay. Most people who just come up and they're like, I have this idea. You're going to have to pull our time and you're going to have to be engaged and you're going to have to show your engagement by being around, being involved mm -hmm. and like learning how to code and learning our architecture and trying to build this feature. And if you get stuck, we'll be there to help and we'll maybe do a sprint. We'll do a bunch of time. We'll bring everyone from the software factory in to help out. Okay. But you're going to have to constantly be demonstrating that engagement. And as soon as it's gone, then to me, that feels like a business decision. In your part of the business, this is no longer something important, right? You let the first line managers work that out. We have people that are quote unquote citizen developers that are fully on a project 100% with us for the next two years, because that team understands that getting this thing, say, refactored out of Excel and into a proper web app with an API and a database, that is core to how this team will perform. And they're happy to support it and put people and work with Software Factory directly. Those people feel almost like members of our team. They just happen to be focused full-time on one app. And then you see the other kind as well. It's just a part-time thing. They just want to learn some skills, maybe beef up the resume a little or sure. you know, expand a little. We kind of see all types, but the pull model lets us support all these people in whatever way they want and have a small core team. You know, we've talked a lot about the citizen developer model. Mm -hmm. Go a little deeper on the second model. What do you call that? Yeah. So that one's like, we have these internal phrases like learn to fly, which was is that one. Mm -hmm. And then we have like be a co-pilot. And so be a co-pilot is sort of the other model where if you have some people that want to learn to code, you come join us and we'll help you. And you kind of build it yourself with our help slowly. The other model is really, it's the benefit of having a long running core team. So this is where a team might not have anyone who wants to do this, but they still need an app. Maybe they have some funding internally. They need to stay engaged as a product owner, sort of, or at least a person pulling on our time and commitments, but they want a fund to move fast. I and see. in this case, usually we don't have the manpower to do it directly, but this is where we work with our partners and vendors. So sure, someone like sure, SCP. Sure. So we would say, hey, we have $50,000 to support this work. So I need two or three engineers 
should burst onto our team. And we have a whole setup for our development environment where they can kind of burst onto our team Mm -hmm. and they work alongside us. And we have some really nice controls in place where it's like, we set the architecture. If you guys and your engineers join up, you're going to work in our style. If you need to build something new and interesting or different, you have to teach it to us. And so you guys are burst in, help us build this application, keep the engagement from the person in the business. But at some point, your work is done and you guys are gone. Then the long running team has to understand what was built. We have to continue bug fixes. We need to be able to manage it in the platform. It's a similar model. It's just that in this case, the quote unquote citizen developers are actually pros and they're on the project of whatever they're on with. And they're there to accomplish a more structured project versus yeah. this like, hey, I'm going to work with you, Raman, because you want to build a thing and your manager is going to allocate eight hours a week of your time to learn how to do this. And you're going to kind of just manage that thing for you and your team. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. Yep. Okay. And this one can still kind of work that way, but also like we still hold the line on, you know, that person who wants app A is not going to write down 30 requirements yeah. for the SEP team sure. or for us, sure. right? It's still you're there, we're meeting constantly, and it's a it's a team for a certain number of hours or a certain number of sprints or whatever. Mm-hmm. And again, we will discover that business value that needs built next. It's a very similar model, but it's it's slightly different in that you either have you know time you can commit people to, or maybe you have some budget. And outside of that, then it kind of just goes in our backlog. And we have a fairly small core team, so sometimes that might take a while. We might be able to give you a full sprint, but like it'd be hard for us to just go build a whole app Unless there's very high, high level leadership push. You guys aren't just building apps for people across the business. You're also like building out the infrastructure and the architecture. And- yeah, we are now. Yeah. Yeah. There's first, more than just building just apps. apps. Yeah. yeah. And so that's really, again, in the last few years, like the other big thing, we did that approval process, which was really powerful. The other big thing we've done now is we have a platform. We call it our Catalyst platform. And it's essentially a very much cloud native platform. You know, we're mostly a Microsoft shop. We're using Azure, some other clouds as well, but Azure's the big one. But we're using like Kubernetes clusters and mm-hmm. Argo CD for GitOps. And mm-hmm. we recently took the, while well, you were there, we took the whole team to KubeCon and we really looked around and saw what everyone was doing to realize like we're actually pretty well lined up with what industry is doing. We have to do a few things different because right. we're a regulated industry, yep. but there's other people in regulated industries doing this as well. I and mean, we're not special. So I think in that case, it's it's really nice. We now have this platform where we can do things like build an application, secure it, scan it, static application testing, dynamic application testing, unit testing, automated user acceptance testing, on and on and on, and deliver from these pipelines in a very continuous way into these secure environments, both maybe US only, maybe global, or some kind of extra protected environment where the data has to be very secure. And we're doing that in a way that not only meets our compliance standards and our regulations, But it also, those guardrails are now set up so that even a citizen developer who doesn't understand DevOps or DevSecOps, they don't even understand containerization to a big degree. We have these architectures in place where we show them how to run it in either cloud development environments or on local machines. They run them, they can deploy them, they see the results of their scans. And when they meet those things, it can actually get deployed relatively quickly. It's kind of this magic freedom in a framework that's now starting to work. And we've done this with a very small team. So it's, you need the long running team. We're now to the level with leadership that they realize the benefits of this and we probably need to start scaling pretty big, but it's kind of been slow and it's been a lot of pushing and a lot of dealing with bureaucracy and 
corporate IT and all that kind of stuff as well. I often use uh, Raman as a straw man because he's been here for 30 years and has worked in a number of like all of the regulated industries. Sure. So he understands it better than I do. When you're moving an organization, I feel like towards, I'm going to say more modern technologies, the security folks within IT are often maybe the most cautious because they see that as a bigger risk. How have you navigated some of those conversations with folks inside of Rolls-Royce to help them understand, hey, we're not actually introducing more risk by moving to cloud technologies. Here's how we're approaching and keeping security and enablement in mind. I'd rather imagine there's a little bit of provability there to get a little bit of the buy-in and support and that a little bit of a flywheel. You get a little bit of trust, mm -hmm. you build a new thing, yep. but a little bit more trust. Value flywheel. Yeah. Absolutely. What's that been like for you? Yeah. So I think there's two things I guess I would mention. Like, first of all, and I wouldn't have believed this when I started, but the people skills really matter. Yeah. Like, I feel like I've grown yeah. a lot on the people skills side from where I was at the beginning. I was letting technical ability try to just win the day. You can't be without that. And it does matter that you need to be able to walk the walk. But I yeah. thought that would be enough. And it wasn't. You have to convince people. There's this constant talk about like, you need to bring people along. And I always just yeah. thought that was lip service and I never really believed in it. Now looking backwards, I realized that's what it took. Because the new approval process we're using that's so much faster and easier than that old one, it actually turns out we have to check all the same boxes. Like one of the boxes Rolls-Royce checks, we're a UK owned business doing US DOD work in a lot of the cases. So we have some very strict controls over how that works. And in doing so, we have a lot of colleagues in the UK. So for us, at least, and probably more than many other companies in this space, export control is a very big thing. Yeah. We constantly have to think about it and worry about it and be careful of what we're doing because I'm constantly on calls with people in another country and I'm working on defense programs. So I have to be very careful what I say, what I share, you know, on my screen share, do I have something visible? It's top of mind. The old approval process takes care of export control. The new one also has to. Yeah. I can try to check that box a different way, maybe faster, maybe more automated, whatever, but I can't actually stop checking that box. And you can go down the list of all the other things as well. So it's really about convincing those people, I'm not trying to skip you. I'm not skipping your area of checks and balances or governance or compliance. I'm still going to hit it. I'm just going to hit it slightly differently. I'm going to make one document and reference it 10 times. And you tell me whether that reference makes sense. And if you do, we're good. Rather than writing a new one that looks like the last nine. Things like that, I think, is what really matters. I think we're actually checking more security and compliance boxes now than we used to because we're doing it in a continuous manner. And every commit gets looked at rather than this version that got approved and now did you update it when you last should have kind of questions. That's, I think, the first big thing. You described that. So SCP got into agile practices really early and doing work, as Zach said, apparently I've been around the bend a bit, uh, <laughs> but, but doing work with med device companies have very strong SOPs around how the work gets done for very good reasons. Yeah, These things can hurt people, right? And you would see a lot of behavior of frustration, like who even makes these rules and why can't we work in this way we know is smarter? And I'm curious if, if you had the same experience, when you actually go meet with the person who writes the rule, they're A, delighted that anybody's paying attention in a not fussy way, and B, typically very engaged in saying like, yes, show me a great way to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I'm all ears. I'm but excited. Like yeah. as long as we are still, because you know this thing's important. Like, yeah. Did you find the same? 
I did. And so actually, that's kind of the second thing I want to mention. It's it's actually a book. And I wish I would have found it at the very beginning of this journey, but I found it about halfway through. And I think it sets a really nice model for how to think about this. The book is actually Delicate Art of Bureaucracy by Mark Schwartz. So he has a number of really good books. I believe he's a CTO or something like that at Amazon. It's a short book. It's fantastic. He talks about like the three ways of dealing with bureaucracy. And I've used all three. And I think you'll recognize all three. The first way is the way of the scalpel. And so the idea is you slice away parts of the bureaucracy using other bureaucratic techniques. He makes the case that like developers at heart are bureaucrats. We love nothing more than to take something and lock it into a process that's smooth and efficient. But the next person down the line will say that's a bureaucracy that they want to change too. Things like you write a document that says how you're going to meet export control. And if you meet this, you no longer have to follow the old process. That's using a scalpel to slice away a big chunk of the bureaucracy. You still have to check the boxes, like you said, but now I have less work to do because of the controls I just locked into place. He talks about like when he was working with the government agency, he would use a big, long, there was a huge process they had to follow, but he wrote a new process that says he didn't have to follow the other process and they'll do it a different way. When the auditors came along, they were fine with it because there's a paper trail. You know, this document says I don't have to follow that document. You're good to go. It feels strange, but like that's absolutely one of the ways to deal with it. The second way of bureaucracy is the way of the monkey. In this way, it reminds me of some research on like complex biological systems where they are so complicated, you can't possibly predict the results. All you can do is add a stimuli and then observe. And so for me, like I think of this like almost like a tree. You poke and prod at one branch of the bureaucracy and see if there's a response. For instance, and this is one example, like we had a line in some random IT document that said Docker is not allowed at Rolls-Royce, but containers have been the industry standard for at least 15 years now. And so it's like, it didn't make sense. And so like I used a Docker container in a very low risk way and then went and told everyone in IT and IT security about it. They were happy. They thought it was cool. Wow. It's less resources. It's more secure. And so it's like, to me, that's a dead branch in the bureaucracy. So it's like, we need to get that changed. That actually is not something that anyone really cares about. We need to update those documents. Another one that was the opposite was export control. Because the first thing I did is like, hey, this seems like a lot of work. Maybe we don't need to meet that. Everyone lost their mind. And they're like, you can't, we have to meet that, right? That's a branch of the bureaucracy that is alive and healthy, well-fed for good reason. We have to focus whatever time and energy it takes to make sure every one of these things is met correctly. So it's this provoke and observe. Who is going to respond? Who's not? What matters? What doesn't? And in that way, you start to get a feel for like, what parts do we actually need to think about? And then the last one, which I probably spent more time than I should have, is the way of the sumo, which is where you beat your head against the wall until the wall moves. And it's like, that also happened. I just would bother people a lot. I would keep pushing that we need to get this fixed and show up to meetings and repeat the same things. And over time, you eventually make good progress. It's a simple book. And honestly, like that's kind of the core idea of it. But I feel like I have used all three of those ways over time to get Software Factory where it is today, to where it's being recognized kind of at all levels of the organization. IT is starting to ask questions around their delivery model. And anyway, yeah, I think that's kind of the other big side to answer your question. What I think is really interesting, you've kind of answered a little bit already. One of the questions that I want to ask you about as far as like, what have you learned? So you've learned that, man, People skills and being able to navigate relationships are vital to success. You know, you wish you would have had this book earlier on in the process. 
Yeah, it definitely would have helped. It would have helped. Um, maybe you were doing some things naturally and you read the book and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm kind of doing this. But uh, yeah. Maybe it was a better technique and yep. there's some other things I could try. Yeah. Over the last few years, like what else has been, I don't know, maybe surprising. Can you recall a conversation in one of those branches that you were expecting to be really hard and it was a lot easier than you expected or anything else that you kind of walked in you're like, oh, well, I'm kind of surprised that that went that way. I think there were a number of them, like the ones I used as far as, you know, certain branches are not active. Some are, right? Obviously, the ones that really make sense from a compliance standpoint, those are the ones that are alive and healthy and for good reason. I think there's those, but also I think when you're just starting in this, it's very easy to just like skip writing anything about expert control because it feels kind of far away and I'm just sitting here and just working on this. But a lot of those things can then grow to where now they're in violation of something. So you have to stay on top of it. I think that's important. It's also hard to go to someone who has some cool idea and they're starting to build something shadow IT style and convince them that all this governance actually adds value because sometimes it's so far away, it just feels like a waste of time. So that's tough. And it's tough sometimes to go back to like these super techie people who want to build this really amazing thing. And I see myself like three years ago and I have to be like, whoa, you got to stop. Like we got to do this the right way. And sometimes I hear shadows of what people would have been telling me. So it's like really trying to walk that line. You have to check all the boxes, but can I build that in a way that makes sense? Yeah. Right. So I think I think that's good. There's a book called Ask Your Developer by Jeff Lawson, who is the CTO of Twilio, which is really cool. There's a chapter where they talk about their platform. Can't remember the name of it. But anyway, they talk about this idea of like paved paths where it's like, you know, someone is over here off-roading through the trees. And if you can go see who is doing that and there's 10 people off-roading, if I can build them a paved path and, and tell them about it, I shouldn't force them onto it because they may still have their reasons, but maybe 80% will just move over because this is actually easier. And I love that model for our platform as we keep going forward. Who can we get to stop doing things in the, the bad, uncontrolled way, move over to our way because we've now set a bunch of these things in place and it's easier and you actually deliver better and you get benefits. Like in our platform, we use sidecar containers to handle auth which is fantastic. It's a model the DOD talks about. It means that in the applications, you don't have to write a bunch of identity stuff. Identity is hard. And we've kind of solved this and we can make, you can use your single sign-on accounts to log into these things. That makes IT happy. It makes security happy and it makes the developers happy. That's a win from all angles. Yeah, it probably makes users happy. I got one Absolutely. login. Absolutely. One login, you click the button, I'm yeah. logged in. It knows who I am. It has my little picture. That's fantastic, yeah. right? Everyone else had to find the way to roll their own auth, try to hash passwords and do all this stuff. That's such a mess. And those are the things that are scary for the citizen developers if they don't have help. Like I remember thinking for that little app materials, like how am I going to handle users and logins? Where am I going to put the password? How do I hash it? If you go to IT, a lot of times they'll be like, you shouldn't, you should use single sign-on. But that is a big lift for someone just getting started. Anyway, I think that uh, I think that's valuable. You've already shared a lot in this sort of direction, but here's what's going through my mind. There are listeners out there in big organizations right now. They're hearing this story and saying like, oh, I need that. I need that. I should go do that. You've talked about sort of um, really understanding the bureaucracy and why the systems are the way they are, not ignoring them or maybe not always bashing your head against the wall, <laughs> yeah. uh, not always going sumo. Like what other advice would you give them? Because candidly, like it's great how everybody shares everything these days about how they do business and whatnot, but also sometimes people are maybe casual in how they pick up a tool and try to use it in a very different context. So what other, what other advice might you have for them? I think one is kind of look around and see how people have been successful. How are they doing it? And try to hold that vision. 
And no, like you may, you may end up on a different path to get there, but like keep the vision, keep it at a high level. I think that's really important and just kind of stick with it. That one is definitely critical. Honestly, for us, like one of the most valuable teams as a team and as a culture, we do that with all the early career people that come in. We do this with all of the citizen developers and even with uh, like external partners that come in and work with us. We have this culture of doing. And I think that has really been a differentiator with us in the business. You know, we're a big enterprise. And so there's a lot of people around that are doing things like managing programs and, and doing project management and having meetings with different stakeholders and all this. And that's a big part of the business in any big enterprise. It, it's just part of the deal, right? It's table stakes. But having this culture of like doing, like we have software factory hats that just say the word doing, D-O-I-N. The idea is like, we're doers. We're going to like sit down and we're going to get our hands dirty. We're going to learn this and we're going to build it and it's going to be great. And I don't know how many times I would go have a conversation with someone like, oh, we need to do this a different way. And they would just kind of smack me down and say like, well, no, that's never going to be allowed. So you can just kind of go back and keep building things. And eventually you start to deliver these things for people, even if it's not in the way you'd like to. But over time, you start to get the reputation of like, wow, this person actually just solved a problem. And that gets more visibility and it's a value flywheel, right? Mm -hmm. that, that We've talked about that book before, the value flywheel effect. Yep. You're slowly just adding a little bit of momentum and energy to that flywheel. And it takes time. You have to care enough about the vision to stick with it long enough to see the flywheel pick up speed. But now we're at the point where our flywheel is spinning pretty good. And yeah. a lot of people are starting to take notice. You know, we don't have all wins. We definitely do things sometimes and they don't pan out. We accidentally dropped a production database the other day. A total mistake. And we have a blameless postmortem process. We wrote it up. We recovered in uh, 20 minutes or something like that. But we still made a big mistake there. And it, it led to very little impact because we have in-depth policies and defense in depth and things like this. But like that was still, you know, we made a mistake. Sure. And so just admitting to it and getting back to it and trying to make it better, I think those things are very valuable. Just keep the flywheel moving, be very transparent. There's been a number of high-level meetings where we would report on a blameless postmortem of like, we really messed this up and I want everyone to know about it and hear about it. And we're not blaming anyone for it, but it just happened. There's some amazing YouTube videos of companies that do that. Like GitLab has one where they dropped a, the whole production database because they typed a command in the wrong terminal window and they just owned it. They just admitted it. And I think that's really cool. I think in our defense industry and the highly regulated industries, people are very shy of admitting and just being transparent about those kind of mistakes. But the messaging we're hearing from the DOD and other customers is like, they want everyone moving that way. And that's going to take learning a lot, failing a lot, and that it's good to kind of head that direction. So being honest about the problem and then doing the work. I don't think that's unique to aerospace. I think yeah, you know, every large corporation probably has some challenges with transparency and fear around Absolutely. owning your mistakes, right? Because it's easy to jump in the shame. I love the idea of a blameless postmortem, you know, trademark Josh Haynes. Yeah. I uh, wish I think we got that from a book too. I can't remember okay. the name of it. It was a it was an SRE book oh, for right. site re site reliability engineering. Yeah. It was one of those. But yeah, it, you're right. It's a yeah. it's a common thing in some industries, but yeah. in others it's not. Nobody's perfect. We're all gonna screw up at times. It's owning it, learning mm -hmm. from it, and moving forward. You know, yeah, don't absolutely. don't stop making bets. Yep. I like that. So um as as you kind of think a little bit ahead, you know, without sharing any secrets, um <laughs> So, you know, being very careful here, I'm curious, you know, starting to scale what you guys have built, right? It started with you, then you full time, and then, you know, maybe a small team of two or three. Now you got a team of six plus, uh, you know, a, 
a few dozen citizen developers. What does it look like to start to kind of take this maybe corporate wide? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not actually sure. We're right in the middle of this kind of public facing transformation program. Sure. So we're making good progress on that. On that, it seems to be headed in a solid direction. There's interest from a number of areas about how Software Factory could scale up and what that looks like. I could see a situation where we have kind of a central team and then maybe like deployed smaller teams to different parts of the business. That could be a thing. It could be kind of like something like the old Tiger team where people come in for a project and then come back. That might be a thing. There's a number of ways I think it could work. There's kind of already buy-in on having the software factory model around, you know, maybe potentially many software factories. We try to share processes where we can, but like there's a part of the business in the UK that really focuses on the low no-code environments. So things like Power Apps or Mendix, they may end up in a very similar idea where it's like they may not brand or call themselves a software factory, but in concept, they would be. If you're in that area and you need an application, you could go to that team, learn with them, train with them. They have some guardrails. Maybe they have some good training and they can help you deploy things in that area. We're a big enough business that there's a number of those areas around. And then we try to share best practices across. There's a number of different ways I think this could go. It just kind of depends. Also, I think that you could start to scale this on like a lot of types of internal software should follow this kind of model. Maybe even some very targeted external stuff. You know, like I doubt we're the type of company that's going to end up in a space of doing this in a big way, like in your kind of space. But there may be some targeted engagements with certain customers that it makes sense. And having the knowledge and capability to build modern software in a way that would be secure and compliant, I think can be really powerful. Because at least we have the option if we want to move into that space. It becomes a choice that's on the table where without that, it's not even on the table. So it's interesting. I'm excited for the future. I feel like our flywheel is spinning. I feel like the business is getting it. And and we're really starting to consider what that might look like. So as you think about giving yourself advice three years ago here, as we wrap up, what's the one thing you wish you would have told yourself if you had a time machine? I would say focus in on, especially if you're a technical person, focus in on the people skills. I have some friends who have taken like a, like a Dale Carnegie class like some of the in-person leadership classes, like the famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence Influence People, people, right? Amazing book. I know some people that have taken those kind of classes. I think that would help. I've definitely grown in that space a lot compared to where I was back then. But I think having that under your belt, like read the tech books, follow the blogs, all this stuff to learn how the tech works, but also being better because at the end of the day, you're going to be in a meeting with IT people, security people, stakeholders, and you're going to have to sell yourself to them. It's not just your ideas, but you have to sell yourself first. And like that was an area I just really never focused in that much and did kind of didn't believe it when people would say it. But like looking back, I might believe myself <laughs> and I would probably say that to focus on that as well, at least maybe run them both in parallel. That's good so, advice. That's a good book too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so yeah. much for spending some time with us and sharing your journey yeah, so thanks far. thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, excited for the future. I'm passionate about this. I think it's really good. It's a good direction. It's yeah. been a lot of fun to kind of move into this whole other space, leave materials in the rearview mirror, move into a three circle guy, right? Three or four, if you consider like training young people and with citizen developers and early career rotations and things like that. So it's a blast. Like I find myself in the evenings, if I have free time, like I'm working on apps for Rolls Royce, because to me, it's not a job. I just want to stop and move on. It's something that's fun and I care about it. And it's really cool to have a job like that. Yeah. So honestly, it's, it's been a, a big win and a, a transition I never predicted, but I'm happy about the direction. So that's unique. Absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah. Appreciate it. Cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot. 